I want to encourage all of you to stick around after worship for the members meeting. <clears throat> it's really a significant part of the life of the church. Uh, it's the exercise of the keys of the kingdom of Christ. And it's serious and good and important and interesting uh, business that we uh, put, are put to. So I hope that you can all stay. Uh, if you're members, uh, please, we, we ask you to stay and uh, be part of that. Uh, but now open your Bibles uh, to James chapter 1. James 1, and we will in just a minute read verses 1 through 4. James 1. James calls us to joy in trials. Uh, so as you're turning there, we're starting, as you might be able to tell, in the book of James this morning. Uh, we finished 2 Corinthians last Sunday by God's grace, and now we're uh, launching into the book of James. I'm excited about it. James is sometimes considered or called the wisdom literature of the New Testament. I think there's good reasons for that. Wisdom is certainly a recurring theme in the book of James. From the beginning, he tells us how we're to pray and ask for wisdom whenever we need it with confidence that God will give wisdom. Then one of my favorite scripture passages in all the New Testament um, comes in chapter 3 about what wisdom that comes down from above looks like as contrasted from the wisdom of the world, which is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So wisdom is certainly a theme in the book of James. Also, James kind of resembles wisdom literature as he jumps from topic to topic throughout the book. Sometimes it can be hard to summarize an entire chapter uh, in the book of James because he's hitting so many different topics, which is reminiscent of how uh, Solomon, the great wisdom teacher of the Old Testament, teaches. So James is uh, sometimes considered wisdom literature of the New Testament, and I love wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is probably my favorite biblical genre, so I'm really looking forward to mining the riches of James uh, with you for the next several months. James says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. So let's take a minute now as we begin our study of the book of James to ask God together to fill us with his wisdom as we work our way through this book both this morning and over the next several months. Um, let's pray together in confident faith that God will answer, that he has promised in his word that when we come and ask for wisdom that he will answer and fill us with wisdom. So let's ask him together. God, Will you please guide us through the book of James in the next several months? Will you please fill us from your word by your Holy Spirit with all spiritual wisdom? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here, present in power right now to bring the blessings of Christ to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would please illumine our hearts to see and understand and know and believe and walk in all that your word has for us. Father, we ask that you will give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. 
What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might? God, teach us line by line, precept upon precept. Show us Christ who is our wisdom and transform us further in your likeness. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Will God answer that prayer? Absolutely. So this morning we're just going to look at four verses of James. We're going to start slow because the first verse introduces the book of James to us, gives us a sense of who's writing, who he's writing to, and then launches us right into God's wisdom on how to understand and respond to trials in our lives. So, are you ready for James? Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's it. That's our passage for this morning. James teaches us to rejoice in trials. So first, James. Who is James? Verse 1 comes right out and identifies the letter as written by James, saying, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But who is James? Church tradition tells us that it is James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when trying to answer questions like this, who is this James, I usually go with what church history says, unless there's some strong reason not to. The church is our people. The church are the people of God, guided by the Holy Spirit down through the ages. And the church were the people that had the true things passed on to them who then passed them on to others, right? Somebody wrote this letter. There was a time when a guy sat down and wrote this letter. His name was James, and then he gave it to other people. He spread it out to the church, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and those people knew who the letter came from. And everybody kind of knew who the letter was written by, who this James was was, and that word was spread as the letter was spread. So if the early church thinks that this was James, the brother of Jesus, that seems like the way to go. But there's some difference of opinion across church history on which James, not whether James wrote it, we know it was James, it says it right there, but which James wrote it. Because there are four different guys named James who feature in the New Testament that it could be. And our letter doesn't specify which James it is. So it's worth asking for a brief minute as we get ourselves oriented to the letter, who is James? Of the four James talked about in the New Testament, one is a pretty obscure figure, two are apostles, and the fourth is the brother of Jesus. That gives us several pretty feasible candidates for which James wrote this letter. 
So we have these lists of apostles, which we find in several places throughout the Gospels and in the book of Acts, these lists of apostles of the 12 original followers of Christ. And in those lists, we hear about three Jameses, just in those lists alone. You have James, the son of Zebedee, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Judas, the son of James. Okay. So one of the disciples was named Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but there was Judas Iscariot, and then there was another disciple, another of the twelve, named Judas, and he was distinguished from bad Judas by being called Judas, the son of James. Now, I bet that Judas, the son of James, liked his name for most of his life. People probably said when his parents picked it out, oh, that sounds nice. I like that. What a nice name. Until Judas Iscariot ruined it forever. When we named our second son Judah, some of his cousins who were little thought we were saying Judas when we told them we had named him Judah, and they were like, why did you do that? Why would you name him Judas? Like, no, not Judas. Judah. Judah. Okay, so there's James, the father of good Judas, the apostle. But that's all we know of this James, is that he was the dad of good Judas. Judas, And he was brought in just to distinguish good Judas from bad Judas. And so he seems like the least likely of the candidates to have written this letter. He's James, just known for being the dad of good Judas, one of the twelve. Okay, so... Probably not him. That's probably not the James who's the author of the letter. Then there are two apostles named James. And one of the apostles, the son of Alphaeus, is only mentioned in these lists of the twelve and nowhere else in Scripture. That doesn't mean he couldn't have been the guy to write it, and he very well could have been. John Calvin suggests that maybe James, the son of Alphaeus, did write this letter. But most people think that an author of Scripture would have gotten more mention across the New Testament. He maybe would have been a more well-known figure if he was the writer of one of the books of the Bible. So in light of that, most people set aside the Apostle James, the son of Alphaeus, as the most likely candidate for the author of our letter. So that leaves us James, the son of Zebedee, and then James, the brother of Jesus. James, the son of Zebedee, was also one of the twelve. He was brother to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. James, the son of Zebedee, in addition to being one of the twelve, was actually one of the three within the twelve. Do you remember how Jesus had the twelve, but then within the twelve he had three who seemed particularly special and close to him? Peter, James, and John, among the twelve, alone got to see the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. He brought those three up to the mountain and was transfigured before them. Also, those same three, Peter, James, and John, alone got to see Jesus raise the ruler's daughter from the dead. And then also, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was going alone to pray, he brought the twelve with him. He told them, watch here and pray. And then he took James and Peter and John and brought those three further and asked them to pray. And then he went even a little further from them. So these three often got to go the extra distance with Jesus. Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John. Now, Peter and John both wrote significant amounts of Scripture in the New Testament. And so in my mind, that makes 
James, the son of Zebedee, a really likely candidate as to be the one who wrote the epistle of James, the letter that we're looking at. But commentators, as far as I've read and people trying to decide who wrote this, they often remove James, the son of Zebedee, from the list because he was put to death by King Agrippa in Acts 12, 2, which would have been around AD 44, which would have been quite early. Um, But James is considered one of the earliest written books of the New Testament, and so I don't see any reason not to date it before James, the son of Zebedee, was put to death. All right, so that's my case that maybe it was James, the son of Zebedee. Then there's the majority view, what most people hold, which is that this letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus. That's strengthened by the fact that this James did become a central leader in the church in Jerusalem, playing an important role in churchwide decisions in the book of Acts, being recognized by Paul as a pillar of the church in the book of Galatians. On the other hand, Jesus' brothers we know were slow to convert, and it seems like James, the brother of Jesus, wasn't even converted as a believer until after the resurrection of Christ. So, who wrote the book of James? Um, James did. Since I weigh church history quite heavily, I'll say it's likely written by James, the brother of Jesus, but I would suggest also the possibility of James, the son of Zebedee, John's brother, one of the twelve, an apostle, and even one of the three closest to Jesus. Now, in asking the question, who is James, we can say a few more things, these with certainty, and that is that James was a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. James was a servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what it says in verse 1. James was a man who had been chosen by God and conquered by Christ. A man who had surrendered his life to God and the lordship of Christ to go wherever Christ sent him, to do whatever Christ commanded him, and as here, to say what Christ told him to say by his Holy Spirit as he wrote this scripture. So the book is written by James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who's it written to? It tells us here it's to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, 12 tribes refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. Obviously, the dispersion was kind of a technical term for the scattering of the Jewish people after the Assyrians and then the Babylonians came in and the people of Israel were sent into exile. They were sent into exile and that was known as the dispersion. So James says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. But I take it James used this description to refer to the church as a whole scattered after the martyrdom of Stephen. So the 12 tribes refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jesus then chose 12 apostles in his reconstituting of the new covenant people of God, saying that the true offspring of Israel are those who trust in him. And then when we read Acts 11.9, we see the Bible recasting the term dispersion, this technical term for the dispersing of the people of God during their exile, But Acts 11.9 reuses this term, the dispersion, to a time when the church was scattered because of the persecution of Stephen. So my take is that James is writing to the true Israel in Christ, the people of God, scattered by the new dispersion caused by the persecution of God's people. Acts 8.1 tells us that in this dispersion, the church was scattered except for the apostles. 
So you had all the people of God. They were largely centered in Jerusalem. You had the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And then you had persecution arise. Stephen is martyred, and now the church is scattered. They're dispersed all over the different regions. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, is what Acts 8.1 tells us. So you can imagine the church suffering a terrible event in the stoning of Stephen, one of their great and prominent deacons. And the new church now being scattered and spread out to the surrounding regions while the apostles, the leaders, remained in Jerusalem, you can imagine what a difficult situation the church was in. Suddenly they're dispersed. Things are going tough. Their own king was crucified, but then risen back from the dead. Now one of their leaders has been stoned. They're scattered. They're dispersed. They're disorganized. The leaders are staying in Jerusalem And you can see why a letter to the church in this scenario would have been of crucial importance. Why communication from the leaders of the movement would have been crucial for those who had scattered. And so this letter was written and sent and passed around to the various Christians who are dispersed. And in light of that setting, in light of that context, it's no wonder why James begins his letter by teaching them how to understand and respond to trials, to hardships. So we have James writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and then he, he, he greets them uh, with this complex greeting. He says, greetings. This is a common word used for greeting people, but it's also worth noting that the word here, the specific word he uses to greet them, is related to the word for joy or rejoice. Okay? It's, a, it's a way of wishing people happiness or joy as a general greeting. It was used all the time. It was just like, hello, kind of greeting. But it literally just meant rejoice, or may God give you rejoicing. And so that transitions us right into his exhortation and how to understand and respond to trials. So let's read it again in verses 2 through 4. He jumps right into it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in classic James style, which we'll we'll become more and more familiar with as we work our way through it, he starts with an exhortation and then follows it up with some explanation. So he just tells you, do this, and then he explains why. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he just starts with the exhortation. Count it all joy. And that's significantly different from the pattern of Paul, isn't it? I mean, Paul slowly builds up to his exhortations. He lays the groundwork of the theology and this is what God has done in Christ and this is what's true and these are theological truths and because of that, this, and because of that, this. And therefore, in light of all that, this is how you should live and this is what you should do. But James has a different style. He comes right out of the gate with bold exhortation that I suspect we're all still learning to obey. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now it's nice that he says trials of various kinds, isn't it? 
that makes it really applicable in all times and in all places, that makes it really applicable to you and I. His original audience was facing some serious trials. We talked about it. Jesus had been crucified, but then he rose, and one of their leading deacons was stoned to death, and they're all on the run, being dispersed and scattered, and they're facing severe trials. They're afraid for their lives. But it's not just them, and it's not just a huge trial that we're supposed to count as joy. It's trials of various kinds. It includes the kinds of trials that you're facing in your life, the kinds of trial that you faced this week, the kinds of trials that are weighing you down. And so you too are being called to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. There's one other thing we should understand about trials as we look at this verse. And that is the word here used for trials can refer to hard and difficult situations. Trials, just bad things that happen in life. Tribulations. It can refer to hard and difficult situations, but can also refer to temptations to sin. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It seems like the point of these verses leans more towards the difficult situations in verse 2. But we're going to notice a few verses down in verses 12 to 15, the same word as trials right here in verse 2, being used to refer clearly to temptations and sin. Just skip down to verse 12, because he's going to pick this theme back up. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, same word, for when he has stood the test, same word, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, same word, tried. Let no one say when he was tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this is a theme that works its way through chapter 1, and we should note that similarity, because that doesn't obviously carry over in our minds from the trials in verse 2 to the temptations in verses 12 to 15. But I think the idea here of trials of various kinds then has to refer to both suffering outwardly in the body, difficult life situations, and also temptations to sin, which are a trial to our souls. They're internal suffering for the Christian when we face temptations, which adds an interesting layer to what James is telling us. So we'll dig into more detail about temptations to sin when we get down to verses 12 to 15, but we should note at this point that James seems to be including them in his exhortation here, as well as things to rejoice your way through. Just like we don't rejoice at the bad things happening to us, so we don't rejoice that we're tempted, right? James isn't saying that you should love it when you get hurt, when your car breaks down, when you fall desperately ill, but that you rejoice even in those circumstances. In the same way, you shouldn't be glad that you're being tempted by sin. Woohoo, I love this temptation, but that you should count it all joy and see what God is doing even in those situations. We've gotten a little ahead of ourselves, though, haven't we? What's the exhortation? Count it all joy, my brothers, 
when you meet trials of various kinds. To count it joy, what does it mean, count it joy? It just means to have a view or an opinion of something. Take the opinion of rejoicing when you face various trials. So, a bad thing happens to you this week. Just think of the worst thing that happened to you this week. What's your view of it? What's your opinion of it? What mindset did you take and are you taking about this bad thing that has befallen you? What do you tell yourself about it? You have that internal monologue and you're talking to yourself about it. What are you saying to yourself about that bad thing that happened to you this week or this month or this year? How do you talk about it? How do you talk to others about it when it comes up in conversation? What, what flavor does it have? Hopelessness? This always happens. I knew this was going to happen. This is how it's always going to be. Stoicism? Just trying to ignore it, just keep a stiff upper lip and just try to pretend it didn't happen. Despair, you just go straight to problem-solving mode. Okay, this went wrong, how do I fix it? We just got to make this right, just move forward. Is it anger or frustration? I knew this was going to happen, this always happens. Just shutting down and going numb, cursing the thing the situation, just trying to distract yourself from it and think about something else, running straight to somebody else to get them to fix it, feeling sorry for yourself and just nursing your woes, giving way before it, looking for somebody to blame. I mean, there are so many ways we deal with troubles, aren't there? We could go on and on because troubles come and there's all sorts of ways we try to cope and deal with it. There's so many things we might think, so many views we might take on it, so many mindsets we might adopt, but we have instruction here on what to do first, and that is we are to take the view of rejoicing when we meet trials of various kinds. Now, this isn't just glib advice. Like we said, it's not telling you you're supposed to just enjoy bad things happening to you or temptations besetting you. Yay, I love when my car breaks down and I can't get to where I was going and all my plans are ruined. I love it when people slander me for no reason. And I love the temptation to strike back at them. I love that feeling of just wanting to get somebody. (laughs) Ah, it feels so nice to stub my toe on the coffee table. (laughs) Or get a root canal. I just can't wait to go get that root canal. I get pleasure from having my tooth drilled into. I just enjoy feeling like my flesh is screaming at me to give way to sin, but resisting it. No, the Bible's realistic about the difficulty of trials. They're hard. Trials are bad. They're unpleasant. But we can learn to rejoice even in them, and this is a wonderful blessing. Because Christ has died and risen, death has lost its sting. Sin has lost its death grip on us. And pain and hardship now become our servants in Christ. And so we can take a view of things that enables us to rejoice even in the midst of trials. Count it all joy when you meet trials of 
various kinds. It's a process of deciding by faith to look at the bigger picture, to trust God, and to take the view of rejoicing even in hard things. The Psalms are full of examples of this kind of thing, aren't they? Of facing a hard situation, bringing it to God, wrestling it through until you end up in a place of trust and praise. The Psalms are not glib. The Psalms are not just skipping through life and everything's fine and easy. Okay? They're wrestling through hard things, but then coming to a place of the praise of God. The psalmist doesn't pretend to love everything going wrong, but he shows us pattern after pattern after pattern of how to start in a bad situation and work through it with God until you arrive at a place of praise or counting it all joy. Now, if you don't come to Wednesday night prayer meeting, you miss this glorious regular time where the saints get together and practice this through just over and over and, and several times a month where we come together and we look at a psalm and we watch, okay, almost always it's there's some problem the psalmist is dealing with and then he wrestles it through until he comes to a place where he's praising God. And you just have this opportunity where you can practice doing this over and over and over again, and sometimes it starts to feel a little bit repetitive, but it's because we just need that practice. So we study through the psalm for half, and then we actually pray through the same types of things as we practice doing this very thing together. And I assure you that if you come to prayer meeting regularly for a year or two, it will deeply shape and transform your piety according to God's word. That's not to mention the honor it will bring to Christ and all the prayers you will see answered, but also it will train your heart in these kinds of things to move from hardship to praise and rejoicing through constant practice. Is what you're doing on Wednesday nights better than that? So James calls us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now he's going to give us a rationale to this command, but there's still something to see in the exhortation itself first, and that is that the word for trials here, that refers to both hard things and temptations, is the word for a test. I mean, that's what the trial means, and it refers to difficult things in life and temptations that you face, but what it means is a test. Here's how the Greek lexicon describes the word, to test or to examine to try to learn the nature or character of someone or something by submitting such to thorough and extensive testing. Your trials, your hardships, your temptations are tests. Do you remember pop quizzes in school? They don't exist just to punish you. They might feel that way, but they're there to reveal what you know and what you don't know yet what you've learned, what you've internalized, what you've made your own, and what you haven't, what's just gone over your head or in one ear and out the other. That's why tests exist. And while nobody really enjoys a pop quiz, if you really want to learn and know something and you really value the process of learning it and taking it on, you know that you need to be tested. That's part of the accountability so that you see whether you're taking it in and whether you're actually learning. And as I was writing this, some guys were here at the building trying to address the situation with the leaking roof. And they had brought in these dehumidifiers and they had them set up because it's been leaking bad and they don't want it to get 
moldy in here or anything. So they've got these dehumidifiers running. And they'd been running for quite a while, but they were coming by just to test the air. They had this moisture tester so they could see how much moisture was in the air in each of the rooms so that they could make sure that the machines were doing what they're supposed to do. Because when something's important, you don't just do something and then assume that everything's working out well. You do something, and then you come back and you check it. You test it to make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, that it's all working according to plan. You address the situation, and then you come and you test it to make sure that the solution is working. And so it is with your faith. Your faith needs to be tested. It needs trials to see that it's actually working, to work the ideas, to work the truths into your brain and your mind and into your heart and out your hands and in your life. That's what tests do. That's what trials do to see that your relationship with God is real and alive and flourishing, that you're internalizing the things that you're hearing. As James will say later, that you're not just hearers of the word, but that you're doers also. That these truths are shaping you. And this is what hardships in your life do. Hardships in your life show whether you're really trusting in God. Whether he's truly sufficient for you. Even if you lose earthly comforts, is all if, if you lose earthly comforts and hardships come, is all hope lost? Is your joy gone? Or does hope remain? Does joy remain because your hope and your joy and your faith are rooted in something bigger than your circumstances? That's what the tests reveal. And so temptations to sin show whether you're committed to follow God, to obey him and to walk in his ways, to trust his word even when you don't feel like it. Even when you feel like doing something other than what God's word says, you're tempted by a sin, and you might feel quite strongly that you'd like to do something that's opposite of what God commands you to do. What will you do? This is a test. Tests reveal where we're at, and we're called to rejoice in that. James is going to explain this process all in a bit more detail. But before we go to that, let me just ask you, how are you doing with this? When you encounter trials of various kinds, when you remember a trial that you've encountered this last week or this last month, how are you doing with rejoicing through the trial? How is your trust in God? Where is your joy rooted? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. So think of that challenging situation, a hard thing in your life, or a strong temptation you had to battle. Did you count it joy? Did you get there quickly? Did you ever get there? If not, have you confessed that to God and repented of it? It's not too late to count it joy. You can literally do it right now. Okay? So if 
you're thinking, uh-oh. So now it's like, okay, because when you get a task, then you need to get it back, and then it has the mark on the top, right? So let's just look honestly. How'd you do? What grade did you get? But this is good because then you can go back and you can fix it. You can fix the things you missed. You can address them. And so right now, if you're realizing and you're being convicted by the Word of God that says, man, I, fa- I faced a trial and I grumbled and I complained, but I never gave thanks. I never came around to rejoicing. You can repent right now and do it. You can change your view of it, your opinion of it right now, and you can rejoice before the Lord. You can count it joy right now because there is always grace for repentance for a believer. Amen? Are you still grumbling, complaining, blaming, or feeling sorry for yourself about a trial? Just stop right now and count it joy. It's a command from your Lord. You're going to get more instruction to help you know how, and that's going to help, and we'll be there in just a minute, but just a command is enough, isn't it? A command from our Lord. Rejoice, count it joy. When I was a kid, my dad would often say to me when I was sulking, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Well, I didn't ever love to hear that in the moment. You know when you're nursing some way that you feel like you've been wronged, you don't really want somebody to tell you, stop feeling sorry for yourself. It was what, often what I really needed to hear, and it really helped me to be a better person and also a happier person. You know, use this with your kids. Hey, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Not if they skinned their knee or their dog died, but like if they're nursing, you know, feeling sorry for themselves and just they won't get over it and woe is me and everyone's against me and it's not fair. Our world today could use a healthy dose of stop feeling sorry for yourself, couldn't it? Or count it all joy. Find a path from your hardship to joy and thanksgiving. Now, I say this a lot on this topic, but just what a nice command, right? I mean, would you rather be a person who goes through life groaning and complaining about everything or someone who rejoices in all things? Just which one would you rather be? Like, which one's more pleasant? Which one do you prefer, grumbling and complaining and being mad or rejoicing and giving thanks? And which one? It's much better. What a nice command God gives us. And whenever God gives us a command, he also supplies the grace we need to follow it. And that means that you have grace available to you to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Christ died to take the curse for your sins, including the sins of grumbling, failing to count it all joy, so that the blessing of Abraham can come to you so that you can receive the promised Holy Spirit by faith. And one of the many gifts that the promised Holy Spirit that you've received by faith produces in you is joy. Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be partial, full, complete. Jesus died and rose again to secure your joy. That his joy would be in you and that your joy would be full. The Holy Spirit has descended and entered into you so that he can bring you and fill you with, among other things, joy. 
rejoicing. What a gift that has been purchased for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive it by faith and walk in it in all circumstances. Christ died to purchase this for you. Don't despise it, but receive it by faith and walk in it with thanksgiving. All right, so how does this work? How do we get our way from testing to joy? We've got the command. This is a wonderful thing. What a kind command from God. But now James teaches us how this works, how we get our way from testing to joy in verses 3 to 4. For you know, four is the ground. This is how you do it. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's really a pretty simple progression, isn't it? The testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, continuing on. And as you let that steadfastness have its full effect, you become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How would you like to be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing in Christ Jesus? Doesn't that sound wonderful? Abounding in the fruits of the Spirit, full of love and joy and peace and patience, worshiping God with your whole heart, and eventually arriving at your eternal reward. That's where trials are taking you. Hard things and temptations test your faith. They bring the question, do you really trust God? You find yourself in a situation where you don't know what's happening, you don't like what's happening, and then you see how you respond. You get into the boat with Jesus and he's asleep and the waves are coming in and they're washing over and it looks like the boat is about to go down. How do you respond? Do you trust him? Do you say everything's going to be okay? Jesus is in the boat. We're going to be fine. Or do you freak out and run and tell him we're all going to die? Remember when his disciples did that and he rebuked them and said, you have little faith. You still not believe. Find yourself in a situation where you feel like you want to do something that God forbids. Do you trust him? Do you trust God's word more than your feelings and your desires? Or do you give way before your temptations? Trials reveal where you're truly at. So as hard things come and test your faith, this produces steadfastness because Christians hold up under trials. Christians persevere through trials. They endure. That's what the Holy Spirit produces in us. We hold up under trials. Now, that doesn't mean you get 100% on every test. But you're learning and you're practicing righteousness. You're working at it. You're getting better. You're being sanctified by God through Christ. And as you hold up under tests by God's grace and the strength that he supplies by the Holy Spirit, as you hold up under tests, your faith gets stronger. When you trust God under hardship, your faith grows. When you resist temptation, your faith grows. Like a muscle resisting the strain of heavy weights regularly grows strong. So your faith under constant testing grows in steadfastness and endurance to make it to the end. Isn't that what James is saying? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The more your faith is tested, the more it is strengthened to press on in steadfastness. 
Hebrews says it another way. You have need of endurance. It's another word for steadfastness. You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You have need of endurance to make it to the end, to make it to the prize, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And the trials are producing this in you. So you meet trials with faith, and it produces steadfastness and endurance, and then you let that steadfastness accomplish its end, which is your becoming perfect and complete. The idea for the perfection which steadfastness works here is the telos. It's the goal or the end of a thing. It's not talking about sinless perfection in this life. It's talking about the goal of the Christian life. It's talking about completeness, wholeness as a Christian. It doesn't mean that you won't sin at all in this life. If anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. But you can be made complete and whole. You can be brought to the goal for which God's word is designing you. That when you sin, you repent and you deal with it. You confess it and you forsake it. And you continue on the path with Christ until you make it to the end when you will be made perfect. The steadfastness is carrying you forward to the goal of your completeness in Christ without any lack. That's what the trials are doing for you. Do you want that goal? Do you want to make it to the end? Do you want to persevere until you receive your reward? Do you want to be made strong in steadfastness and endurance to keep going? Then rejoice in your trials because they are producing that in you. These temporary trials, these light momentary afflictions, even the ones that feel absolutely soul-crushing are, are in this view light momentary afflictions and they are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory which is beyond all comparison. They're strengthening your faith. They're producing steadfastness which carries us to perfect completion in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is just some basic, bigger picture, delayed gratification thinking by faith. You want to get big and strong? You'll have to work out hard, but it'll be worth it because you're going to gain health and strength and beauty. And you believe that, that, and so you rejoice at working out, right? Many of you understand this just on a basic physical level, okay? Well, running is hard, so why would I do it? I don't like it because it's hard. Well, you can have a healthy heart and you can be more fit and it will help you to have a better attitude and outlook at life. And so if you can see that bigger picture of what's going to come, then you can push through the pain to the, in the end, you can actually rejoice in the whole process. We understand that at a basic physical human level. You want a beautiful, fruitful garden. You'll have to work the soil and pull weeds and tend it daily. But that's hard and I don't like that. But it will be worth it because you'll gain delicious fruits that are good for you and healthy and enjoyable and all of this. And you believe that, so you come to rejoice in the whole process. 
even though the pulling of the weeds is never really all that pleasant in itself. You want to be... So we can understand that on a human earthly level, and James is telling us to scale it back and understand that on a spiritual level. Do you want to be perfect and complete in Christ, lacking nothing? You want to endure to the end, to be good and true and virtuous and holy and blessed and arrive in the new heavens and the new earth? You'll have to endure hardship and temptation. You'll have to endure them by faith in God. But it will be worth it because you'll be walking in God's ways, conformed to Christ and brought to your eternal and heavenly reward where sin and death will be gone and every fear will be wiped away and eternal life and joy will be yours in a resurrection body in which you fellowship with God perfectly forever. That's secured for you by the death of Christ received by faith alone, but the path to get there is the path of endurance through trials. But that's where you're going. And so you believe that. And so you rejoice when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Believe it. Know by faith that in Christ Jesus, even death and hardship serve your salvation, and that as you share in Christ's sufferings, so you will share in his resurrection joy. And so, brothers and sisters, rejoice in your trials. Rejoice in your tests. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Amen.